This is the season of Lent, and we have five Sundays from the start of Ash Wednesday until we arrive at Palm Sunday. And so we've decided to take these weeks to focus on the theology of atonement. It's a big, fancy word, which most people don't use in their everyday life, but the theology of the atonement is the understanding that Jesus' death made it possible for us to be one with the Father. Now, theologians have written about this in all sorts of ways, and I'm sure you have a theology of the atonement within yourself. Perhaps you haven't taken the time to articulate it, but invariably, it's a part of who you are as a Christian person. So we want to take these five weeks to unpack, if you will, this theology of the atonement. Now, the convenience of the word atonement in our own language is that it can be broken down into the words that it actually means, at-one-ment. Atonement is about Christ making it possible for us to be one with the Father, wiping away our sins so that we can be one with the Father, at-one-ment. Today's gospel invites us to consider how it is that Jesus made it possible for us to remember who we are, children of God, that we are one with the Father. You hear it in the text that was appointed for this first Sunday of Lent. In our Old Testament lesson, we see the story of Adam and Eve and how it is that sin came in the world. Because somehow we know that sin is in the world, it's hard to figure out where it started or how it started. But this is the text that's in our Holy Scriptures that gives some illustration, if you will, of how sin came into the world. Paul references it in his letter to the Romans, which we read today, when he tells those listeners about how it is that Jesus, in the person, wiped out sin so that we might remember who we are, children of God. How easily we forget it, Paul preaches to his listeners of his letters. But it is in Christ that it's made possible, been made possible, that we can remember who we are, that we are children of God, one with the Father, and called to live into that oneness in the world. In our gospel lesson today, Jesus goes into the wilderness. It always follows his baptism. The story of Jesus going into the wilderness for 40 days is found in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three tell of this journey. It immediately follows his baptism when the heavens opened and he heard, and all heard, that he is the Son of God. The Son of God, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus goes out into the wilderness to fast and to pray for 40 days, and we hear, even in our Eucharistic prayer this morning, that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet did not sin. And I wonder, how is this story illustrative of the temptations that we all face? Because personally, I haven't been in the wilderness for very long. And when I go into the wilderness, I always take water. I usually try to have enough food to make it through as well. So this illustration that we hear in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark and Luke, but in Matthew, which we read today, it isn't my experience. So it leads me to consider, and I hope it leads us to consider, how it is that in this journey of Jesus into the wilderness, we can find ourselves. You see, I believe that Jesus went into the wilderness to remember who he is. He had heard it at his baptism 
that he is the Son of God, and that affirmation and that clarity. And he goes into the wilderness to fast and to pray on this, to get it into the very center of his being, of what it means to be the Son of God. That was a phrase that was not unfamiliar. The Son of God was a term given to kings and rulers in that day. It was a nice sort of reference, if you will, when you became the person in power. Not only had you taken the throne, but you'd been named by the divine as the Son of God, and it gave you a sense of, um, you know, gravitas, if you will. But Jesus is living into this phrase, this term, this identity differently than what it's been lived into as kings and rulers before. And he needs this time of fasting and prayer to remember himself. What does it mean to be the son of God? What does it mean to be God's son? And so he takes these 40 days in fasting and prayer to get that to the very core of his being. And we read that at the end, the devil comes and tempts him. Tempts him away from that true discovery. Generally speaking, I think we have a little trouble with referencing the devil and Satan. As a denomination, the Episcopalians, we don't talk about that very much. I know when I meet with parents of children who are about to be baptized, we go through the liturgy for baptism, and there are three renunciations and three affirmations, and the renunciations say, do you um, turn against evil or uh, against all evil forces and wickedness that rebel against God? And there is some reference to Satan in those three renunciations. And so in that time, I say to them, can you tell me what evil looks like or what Satan looks like? There's often a pretty heavy silence in response. You can kind of feel this sense of like, is this a trick question? If I say red with horns and a pitchfork, am I going to look stupid? Because it seems like a stupid answer. Maybe even a sense of, golly, I wish I was at church last week because that might have been told then. <laughs> After I let them sit for a second in there wondering what the answer is, I ask them, don't you know, though, that evil exists in the world? Don't you know that? We may not be able to name it or draw a picture or even say from whence it came, but it's true. It's there. I heard a story on the news this past week which was vivid in its description of it. Maybe you heard it too. On some gang members being brought to trial finally for a couple of murders that happened several years ago in Brentwood. Did you hear it? Evil. Two young women, the one that was targeted because she had argued over, argued over social media with one of the gang members, and the other just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. The ways in which these two young women were killed is, you don't want to imagine it. Evil exists in this world. We may not be able to say how or why. We may long to be able to define its origin so that we can wipe it out. And I dare say it's impossible. 
It seeps into various little creeps, creases and crevices, cracks in the world, and rears its head. And the thing about evil is that it can seem somehow to make sense. Somehow it did make sense to those gang members. They found it within themselves to be that horrible. I believe that's what is brought to our attention in both the Old Testament lesson of Genesis and in the Gospel lesson today. That evil masquerades itself. It somehow makes sense. It's a little bit reasonable in some way, shape, or form. You hear that from this talking snake in that garden speaking to Eve, and she actually comes back when he offers her some wisdom and insight. She said, oh, no, no. God told us not to eat of that tree. But you see, evil can find the way that you might entertain the idea, and it seeps right in, and it did, just like a snake comes right in, fits right into the little space that it can start to make sense to her, and she says, oh, hmm. It's true with Jesus as well. If you read in our gospel lesson today, Jesus has spent these 40 days, the fullness of time, a good measurement in the Bible. It's the length of time it takes to, till it's complete. And Jesus has been in the wilderness that long. He's got it now. What does it mean to be the Son of God? And this is made known in him. And so the devil comes to him and addresses him with that very phrase. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Well, he is the Son of God. He knows that deep within himself. He knows that completely and fully, and he is hungry. And wouldn't God want him to have bread? Oh, gosh, this, this almost makes sense. But Jesus, from the strength of who he is and from the fortification that he has garnered in these days, this fullness of time, to realize that it is God that sustains him, responds to the devil with scripture. And so the second time that the devil entertains this temptation, he uses the same tool. He uses scripture. Gosh, this is hard. It almost makes sense. But Jesus responds yet again with a scripture that he wants to use to address the temptations that he sees. The devil's second temptation is on top of the temple. And Jesus knows himself to come to save God's holy people. Of course that would be where he would stand. And this third temptation takes him to the top of a mountain where he can see lands. And if he is the son of God, if he is bringing about a new kingdom, doesn't a kingdom have lands? And as he looks over this land, the devil tempts him and says, I will give you all of this if you will bow down and worship me. And indeed, doesn't the Son of God need a kingdom? How do you have a kingdom if you don't have people? A kingdom comes with it. Money that's stamped with your impression comes with honorary people responding to you, recognizing your authority. But Jesus responds again, and I believe that this time he is really tired. It's hard to fight evil again and again. And yet, he goes to the point that he has known that has sustained him for this whole time, the strength of the living God, and he responds, and the devil leaves him. And the one who has sustained him comes and sustains him again. 
So yes, Jesus is tempted in every way that we are. Because at every turn, we are tempted to forget who we are too. That we are children of the living God. That we are children of the Father. And that we carry within us the good news into the world. We work together to bring about God's kingdom. God's hands and feet into the world. So we too are tempted in every way to forget who we are. The illustrations of this world do seem ominous sometimes and seem to want to direct who it is that we are in this world. I was reminded of a story that a friend of mine told me that took place in a little farming village in the mountains of south-central France in World War II. Perhaps you heard this story because it did air on PBS back in the 90s and then before that in the late 80s. The story was called Weapons of the Spirit, and it was about a little Protestant farming village in the south-central region of France. Now, I can't tell you the name because I don't know French, and every time I try to say it, people remind me that I don't know French because of how I butchered the name. But I also know that people who speak another language appreciate it when you try, so I'm going to try. It's shortened to Les Chambons, and that is spelled capital L, little e, capital C, H-A-M-B-O-N, although it does have a hyphen and a couple other words. But this little tiny Protestant village in south-central France, when they heard of the French government giving way to the Nazi German Empire, they decided that they should do something. Most of them considered themselves descendants of the Huguenots, which were the first Protestants in Catholic France. And as the website tells you, they remembered their own history of persecution, and it mattered to them. They also read the Bible and tried to heed the admonition to love your neighbor as yourself. So when their pastor, André Trocmé, reminded them the day after France surrendered to Nazi Germany with these words, they took action. He said, the responsibility of Christians is to resist the violence that will be brought to bear on their consciences through the weapons of the spirit. They heeded the call to be the children of God in that place. They fortified themselves with the weapons of the spirit, if you will, they went back to their scripture and remembered that it is God that gives them strength. There's a beautiful little um, vision, if you will, from the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus, and it uses some imagery to remind the faithful how it is there to fight, to resist the violence that they see. Stand firm, it says in Ephesians chapter 6. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This imagery reminds us that evil exists and we have to be equipped 
to respond to it. When we say, well, this too shall pass, that's not a free pass for us. It's just the promise that God will somehow redeem the difficulty. But how do we act in the middle of the story? How do we live as the people of God in the middle of the story? This little group in this little town, 5,000 people were how many people in this small village? They hid 5,000 Jews and led to their survival. They were never discovered. My friend who saw this movie said, the interviewer asked time and again those people that housed those Jews, said to them, why did you do it? And she said, my friend said, it's interesting to watch the people's response. They almost don't have an answer because that's who they are. They're children of God called to respond to the needs of a hurting world. What does that mean for us? I don't know, but this season of Lent invites us to consider it. That's what prayer and fasting is all about. Making space to sit with the, in prayer and scripture to remember who we are, whose we are, children of God, so that when we're called up, when we see evil in the world, we can respond. If you fast, that can be a place for prayer. Maybe your day is already really full, but if you give up 20 minutes for a meal, you can use 20 minutes to be in the scriptures and in prayer, remembering who you are. That's the point of giving things up in Lent, making space in our already full, jam-packed lives to sit and to be with the living God, remembering who we are and whose we are. I don't know what it means for us as individuals or even for a collective people, the church, St. Stephen's. I don't know, but I do believe we're going to be called on, that we're going to start to see the needs of the world and we're going to know we have to respond. I'm mindful that I've heard on the news this week, and it is just hearsay, some of the decisions of our federal government will mean that some of the most vulnerable will have less than they even have. I, for one, have liked delegating some of the needs of the poor to the federal government. So if that shifts, they're going to be on our doorstep. And if they're not on our doorstep, we have to go and respond to them. Because we are God's hands and feet in the world. As children of God, we're called to live out into the world, taking the love of Christ, the kingdom of the living God, where there is fullness and joy. That's what we're called to do. It's with our eyes that God looks compassion on the world. And so this season of Lent, when we are tempted to forget who we are, may we remember the teachings of Jesus, the one who went and sat with God so that he could remember who he is, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world to remind us that we are one with the Father. Amen.